0: All right, you guys, how's everyone doing? Good. Who had a good day today? Yeah. I was like, I was kind of like half excited. You guys had a good day today? There we go. Any other brave souls go swim in the lake today? I was just, I was sitting there enjoying a milkshake and a burger, freezing, looking at the lake, thinking all you guys were crazy being out there in the water. No chance. What do you guys think the water temperature was? Any guesses? Warm? It wasn't that 50? Would you guys even have any frame of reference for how cold the water would be anyways? Yeah. No, I just making it up. Yeah. That's what I figured. Anyone think, was the water warm to anybody? A few tough ones out there. Who thought it was cold? Yeah. I'm not a big fan of cold water. All righty, guys. Well, let's get ready to jump in tonight. Again, just to recap what we've been talking about so far this whole week, we've set out to answer this question, how can we live resilient? As followers of Christ in a world that is hostile towards Christianity and God and those people who call themselves His followers, and so I hope that as we've walked through the story of Daniel, that you guys have been encouraged. Uh, just as we've gotten to see an incredible example of what it looks like to stand in the face of fear and death and opposition, and for a young guy like Daniel just to say, "You know what? I'm I've decided to live my life for Christ." This morning. Uh, we kind of left you guys on a little bit of a downer note, and, uh, but we were talking about something so, so important. We were talking about the reality of sin in our lives and the truth that sin separates us from God. See, sin is that thing that, that connects all of us in our great need for a Savior. It's embedded into the very fabric of who we are as human beings, and because of that sin we all have a desperate, desperate need for a savior to come and save us from the thing that we can't save ourselves from. Now tonight, we're gonna dive into the truth that God himself can save us from the certain death that we have deserved on the account of our sin. And if we choose to surrender our lives to him, what we can find is a real abundant life with him, not only here on this earth, but for all of eternity. Now, I wanna say this tonight we talked about a lot of really great stuff this week. We've talked about a lot of really practical ways that we can follow God and be resilient and steadfast in this world that is so anti to him. But I have to tell you guys this. Without embracing Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, nothing that we've talked about up to this point matters. Everything that we talk about this week everything that we've covered hangs on the fact that we have a decision to make to declare Jesus as the Lord over our lives and to surrender our entire lives to him. And it's that point that's going to shape our conversation tonight. And so with that, let's pray together uh, and then we're going to dive back into the story of Daniel. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. God, thank you for so much fun um, that we get to have here at Hume Link. Thanks for paddleboards and canoes uh, and boats and chaos on the water. Thanks for wreck and all of the joys uh, of this place. But God, tonight as we dive into the story of the gospel, uh, the present reality that you are here to save us, Father, would you just make us ever so aware of our sin and our need for you? And God, would you soften our hearts to receive the greatest news ever told tonight. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So let's remember where we've been at this morning. Again, we talked about our sin and that the penalty for sin is death and separation from God because God is holy and set apart and cannot be in relationship with sin. And we got to kind of see this whole story play out throughout the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He had placed his hope... In an idol, and the idol that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped was the idol of himself. And because he chose to worship himself and not to surrender his life to God, we see that Nebuchadnezzar lost everything. Right? He had been cut down from his rule. He was driven out to live amongst the wild animals. But the cool thing is that this was not the end of his story. If you got your Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter four. Is where we're going to be at tonight. Daniel, well, I take that. We're going to cover a lot of scripture tonight. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to end somewhere uh, towards the end of Daniel chapter 6. So you can imagine, we've got a lot to cover tonight. But Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to kind of finish out King Nebuchadnezzar's story. Now, as you guys turn there, uh, I'm just going to read. So if you want to stop where you're at, we'll get there eventually. But let me read to you guys. This is Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 34. It says this, But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over the kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven, because his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You guys, what I want you guys to see is this expression of worship from Nebuchadnezzar is different than all of the other ones that we've seen so far in the story. And here's the difference. All of the other times that we saw Nebuchadnezzar praising God, it was simply lip service. His heart was not surrendered. He had no real understanding of his need for a savior, but when he had everything stripped away from him, and at the end of the time, God chose to restore him, and Nebuchadnezzar finally repents and surrenders and runs back to God. We see in the story, he goes on to rule his kingdom for about 40 more years until the time of his death, but again, I want you guys to see the story of redemption and restoration that is present in our God if nothing else that we see in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, I want you guys to see that our God is a God of grace and a God of mercy, who despite Nebuchadnezzar's constant failure and constant flip-flopping back and forth from worshiping idols to worshiping the one true God, what we see is that God is faithful, that if we choose to surrender our hearts to him, he will give us what we've asked for, which is life and abundant life in him. Now we're gonna kind of move into chapter five, and what we're gonna, we're gonna blow through chapter five. I'm gonna give you guys like the 10,000 foot cliff notes version before we get into chapter six, where we're gonna kind of settle down tonight. So after Nebuchadnezzar's death, we see a new king comes into power, and his name is Belshazzar. Okay, what we see Belshazzar is a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, and the story of Belshazzar is basically that he goes on and runs back all of the same mistakes of his predecessor the same pride and arrogance and lack of humility and lack of surrender that marked Nebuchadnezzar's rule is the same thing that we see present in Belshazzar's life. In chapter 5, we get told this story about Belshazzar. He's ruling in the kingdom of Babylon, and he's throwing himself this massive party. And the, the, the point of this party is to praise and honor himself. And just so you guys understand just how arrogant and prideful this guy is, while he's partying in his palace with the whole city, their enemy, the Medes, are attacking the front gate of their city. And Belshazzar is so arrogant, so prideful, that he doesn't actually care to fight back. He just goes on partying while his enemies are literally standing at the gate of the city. Now, what we see happening in this party... Is Belshazzar, if you guys remember back in chapter one, when we talk about the kingdom of Babylon taking over the kingdom of Judah, and one of the things that they did was they took some artifacts, some cups, and some things from the temple of God in Judah, and they brought them back to the temple of their gods in Babylon. And what we see here happening in the story is for this party, Belshazzar has gone to their temple, and he's collected all of these things that they had taken from God's temple in Jerusalem, from in Judah. And he brings them to his party. And so all of these things that were once used in worship for God, he was now using in worship for himself. What I want you guys to see is is Belshazzar is arrogant. He's putting himself on a pedestal next to God. And what was once used in worship for God, he's now using to worship himself. So here we are. We find ourselves at this party. Belshazzar, in his arrogance, is ignoring the fact that there's an attack going on at their front gates. He's picturing himself like God. And in the middle of this party, we read that a floating hand appears. And this hand, not, not connected to an arm, just a floating hand, pops up in the middle of this party and begins writing on the wall. It's crazy. So it's writing on the wall, and, and Belshazzar, it's writing in a language that none of the people at the party can speak. And so Belshazzar goes to Daniel, who's still an advisor for the king, and he asks, or he goes, he asks Daniel excuse me, to translate this message for him. And this is what Daniel tells the king that it means. It says, you have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. See, Belshazzar in this moment was being judged by God to see if he measured up to the holy standard that God had set in perfection. And the results of this test were that he was found to be in sin. To say that he is deficient means that he's come up short. He hasn't done what was required of him to meet the standard, and so he's found guilty in his sin, and there would be a price to pay. Now, think about Daniel for a moment, because we've seen Daniel in this situation multiple times now throughout his story. Daniel is kind of just the bringer of bad news. Have you guys noticed this? Every time a king has an interaction with God or a dream or a a you name it, he goes to Daniel, and Daniel's got to be the one to be like, look man, if you don't get your stuff together, God is going to come down on you in a way that you can't imagine. And you can imagine, like, if I'm Daniel, again, we talked about this, if I'm Daniel and I have to constantly be the one to bring this kind of bad news to confront a king in his sin, then I'm probably going to, I'm going to be a little bit nervous about that. But what we see Daniel do is he, he boldly presents the truth to the king. And he basically says, unless you repent... Unless you turn from your sinful ways, God is going to judge you. And Belshazzar responds in a bit of a shocking way. You would imagine that he'd be angry at this, right? He's the king. He's obviously so prideful and arrogant. And then Daniel comes and tells them that he's being judged by God. And what we see Belshazzar do in response is he promotes Daniel and he praises him. But what we don't see him do is repent of his sins. See, what we see happening in Belshazzar's life was he was content in his sinful way of living. And he had no issue staying there. Before we move on out of chapter five, I just wanna make this point that I think some of us might find ourselves in a similar place to Belshazzar. This week you guys have been here, you guys have, have begun to hear the truth of the gospel. You've heard that, that God wants your life to be surrendered to him so that you can find abundance and joy and, and, and purpose in your life from the God of the universe. And though you've heard this message and you've been in here and you've sang these songs and and you've sat through these chapels, there are some of you who right now have just decided that you are content going on living the way that you have always done it, going on living in your own pride, going on living in your own sin, going on living in your own arrogance. And the sad thing is, you guys, that if you continue to do that, you will not experience the life that Christ has intended for you to live. See, some of us believe that we can find what we're looking for in this world. Some of us believe that this world can offer us the joy that we've always wanted and the fulfillment and the satisfaction and the acceptance that we have been looking for. And I'll be honest with you guys, there is a, to to a certain degree, you can find a little bit of that in this world. You can find a little satisfaction. You can find a little bit of joy. You can find a little bit of acceptance but you will never find it to the degree that you can find it in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we choose to live in sin, and when we choose to look to this world to give us the things that we want, I tell you guys this, you are trading something far greater in relationship with Jesus for something that is but a shadow of what you're actually looking for. If you're looking for things in this world, I promise you will constantly be let down. I can tell you guys this, sin always over-promises and under-delivers. Sin always over-promises and underdelivers. Sin has the appearance of life. It has the appearance of joy. It has the appearance of abundance. But what it offers is temporary, and it is fleeting, and it is hollow. It's the reason why it never satisfies long-term. It's the reason why you always have to go back looking for more. And this is where Belshazzar finds himself. Basically, what we see happen is Belshazzar chooses to not repent. He chooses to go on living in sin, continues his party. And we see that their enemy, the Medes, break through the gate. They overtake the city, and Belshazzar is killed because of his arrogance and his unwillingness to submit to God. And this is the judgment that waits for all of us. If we live in sin, it is death. Now, we're going to go into chapter 6, and we're going to basically see this, that God is faithful to keep his word, When he says that he will save us from our sin if we would simply embrace the truth of the gospel and surrender our lives to him. And so after Belshazzar, we're introduced to a new king, King Darius. This is who we see uh, depicted in our little video that we watched here before. So if you would, flip over in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. That's where we're going to kind of settle in for the rest of our time together. Daniel chapter 6, and we're going to kind of get back into the story of Daniel. Here's what it says in Daniel chapter 6 verse 1. It says Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, station them throughout the realm, and over them he set three administrators including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to the administrators so that the king would not be defrauded. Now Daniel distinguished himself above the other administrators and the satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit, so the king planned to set him over the whole realm. Now, Let's just kind of talk about what's going on here. Uh, if you could imagine King Darius, it would be uh, equivalent to like our president, okay? And so in his kingdom, King Darius is like the president. He's over the whole land, but he assigns governors to rule over the states. And then within the states, he has these mayors that rule over these smaller areas. So he assigns three governors per se, just kind of in our American way of understanding this. He assigns three governors, and Daniel is one of those governors that he assigns. What we see happen is that Daniel, because he's a man of character, he's a man of integrity, the king is very impressed with Daniel. And so he promotes Daniel to above that position of governor. And imagine, he kind of promotes Daniel to a position of like the vice president. Now Daniel is Darius' right-hand man. He's sitting above all of these other people who were assigned by the king to govern this land. And what we see happen in this story is that the rest of these leaders, these people who are appointed by the king to rule over this land, really weren't stoked with the fact that Daniel was being promoted to be the king's right-hand man. And so they start looking for something that they can use to trap Daniel. They don't go too well. They're not doing too well. They can't really find anything. This is what it says in chapter uh, 6, verse 4. It says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this man, Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So here we go. These guys are so jealous. They're looking for something that they can do to trap Daniel. They're looking for something that they can take to the king to say, Daniel is not worthy. He should be removed from this position. But what does it say about Daniel? It says they couldn't find any ground for complaint or fault because he was faithful and there was no error in him. Man, if you guys wanted more evidence of the fact that Daniel served faithfully in every area of his life, this is it. And so because these guys couldn't find something to trap Daniel on, they devise a plan to trap him. And this is what it says in verse 6. So the administrators and the satraps went together to the king and said to him, may King Darius live forever. All of the administrators of the kingdom, uh, the Prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and the governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man besides the king will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish this edict and sign the document so that as the law of the Medes and the Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signs the document. So here we go. We find Daniel again. In another life and death situation, he can either bow to the laws that have been placed on him by the ways of this world, by the king who rules the land, and he can bow only to the king, or he can go on being obedient to God and risk his life in the process. How do you guys think he responds? Let's see here. Verse 10, I think you guys are onto something. Here's what it says When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber that opened towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before God just as he had previously done. Once again, what do we see here? Daniel is living faithfully to God. Daniel didn't care about the pressures that were put on him by the people around him. He simply cared about pleasing God. Again, Daniel did not fear man. Do you guys remember when we talked about this? He didn't fear man. Who did he fear? God right? All of his attention, all of his affection, all of the focus of his life was solely pointed at the Lord. And immediately after he finds out that this law had been passed, that no man should pray to any other God besides the king, the first thing that he does, just like the last time he was presented with a life and death situation, is he goes to the feet of God. Daniel's heart to follow God remains steadfast. And so sure enough, as the story goes on, these leaders and officials, they go full tattletale mode on Daniel. They bring him before the king. And Daniel, again, in the face of hardship, chooses to remain faithful to God. Now, here's what we've got to understand about this story. Darius loved Daniel. Darius did not want Daniel to be punished for what he had done. In fact, Darius had in, really had been tricked into signing this thing. So he didn't think about what this meant for his right-hand man, Daniel. He knew that Daniel served God. He knew that Daniel prayed to God, but he hadn't thought about this when he was kind of lured into signing this law by these other leaders. And so when they take Daniel to the king, King Darius is kind of distraught. He's trying to find a way out of punishing Daniel. And so what we see, if we were to read through the story, is that he takes a day and he's scrambling, trying to figure out how he can pardon Daniel from these charges. Sadly, King Darius can't figure out a way. He is the king, he signed this law, and now he has to enforce the law that he has signed. Because he can't find a way, basically what he does is he has to turn Daniel over to be thrown into the den of lions. To fast forward through the story, Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. A stone is rolled over the top. He has to stay there overnight. King Darius can't sleep. He's praying, he's asking God to save Daniel. The next morning, as soon as the sun comes up, Darius runs back to the den of lions. And what do we know? There's Daniel, untouched, alive, right? And what we see Darius do in response is we see him praise God and surrender his life to him. Notice again, here is another king who got wrapped up in his pride and signed a law that no man should worship any other God but him. And the result of his sin against God was that somebody had to die. And Daniel was the one who bore the weight of his sin. And when Darius sees that God was faithful to protect Daniel, and he surrenders his life, he repents of his wrongdoing, and he praises the God of the universe. Why? Because once again, God used Daniel's faithfulness to prove that God is the one true God. And that God is good to protect and to save those of us who surrender our lives to him. Let's read what Darius says about God in response to his faithfulness. He says, For he is the one living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He rescues and delivers. He does works and signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. My friends, Darius is saved from the weight of his sin because he recognized that it was God who does the saving. It was God who is the one true God. And Darius is saved because of Daniel's faithfulness. Now, we took all this time to work through this whole chunk of the story so that we can get a big picture because I want to make this connection point for you guys right here. What I want us to see throughout the story of Daniel is that in Daniel's story, we are painted a very, very clear picture of the power for salvation and deliverance from sin that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is woven throughout the story of Daniel. We can't read the story of Daniel and not see the story of salvation and God's redemptive plan for humanity woven throughout it. See, Daniel's story tells the story of deliverance from oppressive leadership, but it points us to the story of the gospel, which is Jesus sets us free from the ultimate oppression by sin and death, this thing that plagues all of our lives. We're going to talk about the gospel tonight. And I'm sure many of you guys know of the gospel. I'm sure many of you guys have heard the story of the gospel. But just in case you haven't, or in case you need a refresher, let me share the gospel with you as clear as I possibly can. When God created the heavens and the earth, he did it in all perfection. All of creation was in perfect harmony with God. There was no sin. There was no break in that relationship. God created man and woman in his image, and he gave them one command. You can eat from any tree in this garden, but don't eat from the one. And in a moment of arrogance and pride that we see from Adam and Eve, they made a decision to act in disobedience to God, that they thought that they knew what was best for their lives. And in that moment of disobedience, mankind was severed from our perfect relationship with God. When sin entered the world, Man and God were divided, and there was now an insurpassable gap that divided God and mankind. But here's the kicker. God couldn't stand to see his children eternally separated from him. And so God had a plan to do a redemptive work in us. And this is the plan. This is the good news of the gospel, that while we were still sinners, when we didn't have our stuff together, when we were still messed up, when we were still jacked up, when we were still making mistakes, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come down to this earth and to live a perfect, sinless life. The perfect, sinless life that you and I couldn't live. And then Jesus came and he died the death that you and I deserved for ourselves on the account of our sins against God. Imagine this, a perfect son of God came down and lived a sinless life. And then he died the death that you deserved and that I deserved because of our inability to live that perfect life. And in the greatest act of love ever known to mankind, Jesus died for our sins, paying the full price of the sins that you and I committed. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And in that moment, you and I were given an opportunity to be made right in relationship with the God of the universe. This is the story of the gospel, that while we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, God loved us so much that he couldn't stand to see us separated. And so he made a way that we could be found in relationship with him. And we see parallels of this gospel truth all throughout the story of Daniel. I want you guys to see this. Darius should have been the one thrown into the lion's den on the account of his sins against God. But it was the blameless Daniel who was put in the den instead. Do you guys see the parallel here between Daniel and Jesus? There was an innocent person who had to pay the price for the sins of a sinful man. Jesus, like Daniel, served the Lord with no fault to be found in him. And he paid the price of the sins of another person. Now, Jesus, different than Daniel, Jesus was perfect and sinless. When we talk about this, please don't hear us saying that Daniel was like Jesus and that he was perfect. There was only one perfect man to ever walk this earth, and it was the person of Jesus Christ. But in Daniel, we get to see an example that points us back to Jesus. And this is the beauty in this story, my friends. That hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth, we have evidence that God was writing a redemptive story for mankind. The story of Jesus coming, the story of the gospel, the sacrifice that he made on the cross was not a haphazard thing that just kind of happened by chance. This was God's plan all along. This was the way that he was going to give us the opportunity to be made right in relationship with him. Friends, Jesus paid the debt of your sin. That sin that we talked about this morning that separated us from God, Jesus came and did away with the penalty that we deserved to pay for it. And as he pays the price for our sin, he credits us with his righteousness. And so what happens is when God now looks at us, when we declare Jesus is the Lord of our lives, he doesn't see us as sinful, guilty, dead men anymore. He sees us covered by the sacrifice of Jesus, and he sees us as righteous and holy and perfect because of what Jesus did on that cross. Friends, this is the story of the gospel. Romans chapter five, verses eight through 10 says this. But God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, since now we've been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of Jesus, then how much more having been reconciled will we also be saved by his life. The Apostle Paul says that we have been justified and reconciled by the work of Jesus, meaning that the fullness of God's wrath that we were meant to experience because of our sinfulness against him has been absorbed and fulfilled in the work that Jesus did on the cross. You and I don't have to pay the price for our sins anymore. The good news is that we couldn't do it if we wanted to. This is why we needed Jesus to come. And what I want you guys to see is just how deep God's love is for you. When when Jesus went to the cross, my friends, I want you to know that he had you on his mind. As he hung there and wore the weight of the sins of this world, he thought of you. The reason that he was on that cross was so that you would have an opportunity to have a relationship with the God of the universe. And friends, just like we've seen the kings throughout this story been presented with, you and I have a decision to make tonight. Are we going to continue to go on living as the kings and the lords of our own lives? Or are we going to surrender everything to the God who gave us this life in the first place? And so tonight, I'm going to ask you guys a question. We're going to give you an opportunity to do something bold Right, We've been talking about being bold all week. We've been talking about living like Daniel and his friends and making courageous decisions to follow Christ. And tonight we're going to give you an opportunity. If you have never declared Jesus as the Lord of your life, if you've never surrendered your heart to him and said, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died for my sins and that God rose you from the grave, and because of that work, God, I want to surrender my life to you. If you have never made that decision, I'm gonna ask that you would be bold tonight. And if you want to declare Jesus as the Lord of your life, I'm just gonna ask that right now that you would just stand up on your feet and in front of your peers and in front of your friends that you would say, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. I'm giving it all up. I don't wanna live in sin. If that's you, would you just stand up on your feet right now? Very cool. Very cool. My friends, can I tell you, just stay standing, stay standing for me for just a second. Can I tell you guys that the decision that you are making right now to surrender your life to Jesus is the greatest decision that you will ever make. And from this moment on, your life will never look the same. Why? Because you know you are no longer a slave to your sin. You are no longer a slave to yourself, ruled by your own desires, but now you are a child of God who has been justified and made right with God by the work of Jesus. My friend, your eternity is now sealed in eternity with Christ forever, and that is something to celebrate. And give your guys yourselves a round of applause. This is exciting. You guys can grab a seat. I've got one more question. I've got one more question that I want to ask tonight. Maybe some of you guys have surrendered your life to Jesus in the past, You'd call yourself a Christian. You'd say, you know what, Jesus is the Lord of my life. But if you look back over the last couple of months or years or, or this last season of your life, then maybe you found yourself to not be walking the way that he's called you to. Maybe you haven't been living your life surrendered. You surrendered one time. Man, but maybe it's time that you do it again. And you just say, you know what, Jesus? man, I've received you as my Lord and Savior, but I have done a bad job of surrendering my life on a daily basis to you, and tonight I want to recommit my life. If you want to make a, another decision, and to say, Jesus, I'm recommitting my life, would you just stand up right now so that we could celebrate you tonight? Maybe a few of you guys didn't, yeah, yeah, there we go. Very cool, very cool. Very cool, awesome. Well, I'll promise you guys this, shh, 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 shh. I'll promise you guys this. Whether you made a first-time decision to follow Jesus tonight or you're recommitting your life to him, I promise you this. It is the greatest decision you will ever make. Your life will never look the same. And you guys have just surrendered your heart to the king who gave you breath, who gave you life, who created you, knit you together uniquely in your mother's womb, and has put you on this earth for a purpose. And I can promise you this, that if you continue to surrender yourself to him, And allow him to guide your steps and allow him to direct your life. You will find a life here on this earth that is far more abundant, far more joy-filled, far more full than anything that you have found ever before. I'm so, so excited for you guys. Here's what we're gonna do next. I'm gonna pray for us. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. I'm gonna pray for us. Our band's gonna come out, we're gonna sing one more song, and then Biscuit's gonna come up, and we're gonna have some instructions that are gonna be unique for tonight. So Uh, We're gonna go back to the Lord in song. We're gonna praise him for who he is and what he's done. But first, let's pray together. Jesus, God, we're so grateful for who you are. God, we're so grateful for the sacrifice that you've made. God, for the work that you did on the cross so that we didn't have to be dead in our sins anymore, but because of you and your great love for us and that while we were still jacked up, you sent your son. God, we are so thankful for your love. We are so thankful for the work of Jesus on the cross. And God, tonight we're so excited for these hearts, these students in here who made a decision to follow you for the very first time. We know that heaven is cheering it up. We know that heaven is celebrating because another soul has come home. And so God, I pray that these students would understand the weight of the decision that they've made tonight. And they would know that their life is now on a new track, headed in a new direction. Father, we love you. It's in your name we pray, amen.